everybody. Duncan Green here with the weekly roundup of posts on from poverty to power. Uh, Shortlist this week and there'll be shorter lists for the weeks to come because I'm on partial furlough from Oxfam. So I'm not allowed to work on Fridays, so no posts on Fridays. So uh, I will uh, fill you in on the four posts we did have this week. Um, so the first uh, post we had was the usual links I liked. Uh, one I particularly liked this um, uh, week was from Nick Cheeseman. Well, like is probably the wrong word. So Nick Cheeseman wrote a great book called A House Rig an Election uh, about the way democratic forms have been subverted in practice. Um, and he's a, an Africanist. He, he writes very widely about different countries in Africa. And he put together a uh, what he called a dictator's post-election playbook um, uh, in uh, in readiness for the Ugandan ele- uh, the recent U- uh, Uga- election in Uganda. And he said uh, his pl- playbook consists of turn off the internet, lock down opposition candidate, raid opposition HQ, disrupt opposition efforts to collect un- uh, rigging evidence, massive security. Um, announce a large victory, about 60%, depict opposition protesters as terrorists, cozy up to donors, peacekeeping, etc. And uh, pretty much Uganda, um, President Museveni and the election has got the full house and his victory was alarmingly close to 60%, which was what Nick uh, suggested is usually the case. So uh, that book is really interesting and is a, a, a it's, a, it's incredibly worrying, really, because uh, donors and outsiders have put so much effort into the form of democracy. And yet people who want to stay in power have got very, very good at maintaining the form while subverting the substance. And uh, it's a huge challenge, I think, to uh, to the wider community to try and get genuine democracy uh, respected in country after country. Second piece was a really interesting uh, 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 um, reflection on the dangers of policy sizing social change. It's by Christopher Chung Wen Wai, uh, who's a fellow at the uh, uh, um, Atlantic Fellows um, uh, Initiative in, in the LSE, uh, which has uh, got students from all over the world, mid career students doing work on inequalities. Um, and Christopher's piece is on what he calls the politicization of social change. So he contrasts it with the politicization of policies, which ties policies to narrow political interests. But the politicization, the policyization, it's very hard to say, the policyization of social change confines social change to narrow policy interests. So it reduces social change to things which are policy related and social change is much bigger than that. So he puts out five characteristics of what he calls policyization, which I can now say. First, constructs achievement as predominantly document-based process. So you know, your achievement is getting a new law in place, getting a new paper published by parliament or by a particular ministry. So that's when you announce your win, even though that document may not make any difference in, in, in real life. It promotes a culture of celebrating access to the corridors of power. So if you're trying to change policy, then getting access to policymakers is crucial, and that can become a bit too seductive. You know, you start to um, uh, try and say the right things, you try and do the right things, you try not to rock the boat, you want to keep your access. So I think that's a very good point. Um, It puts forward a narrative that confers advantage to the policy actors. So, you know, if you've got access to the um, corridors of power or if you are one of these sort of inner in in a circle of people, whether they're in NGOs or think tanks or government, you are part of the in crowd, you're one of the cool group. 
doesn't have a lot of space for people who are on the outside, marginalized communities, people who are, you know, uh, who are not part of that circuit of power. And that narrative kind of actually excludes and de uh, and sort of uh, subordinates um, uh, a large number of people, often the people who those policy actors are uh, theoretically trying to promote and help. It uncritically imagines the relationship between policy change and social change. You pass a new law and voila, something changes. Well, we know that's not true. And it's preoccupied with justifying rather than learning in that you justify you know, your, your work. You say, yes, we got that new law passed um, and therefore we've succeeded. There's no, you're not going to get funding if you say, yeah, we got a new law passed and nothing happened. So that learning element is downgraded. So he says the, uh, his conclusion is the most immediate harm is that the desired social change does not take place. But policy change constructed as achievement gives a deceptive appearance of progress. So you get this kind of slightly unreal theatre of, of people lobbying for policy change, celebrating policy change, moving on to the next policy change, and really what is changing in real life. So I think a very, very good reflection. Uh, and it, was very, it got a lot of retweets and a lot of, uh, a lot of hits. Um, third post of the week, I just had a bit of fun. There was a really good Twitter thread from Martin van Smeden uh, in the Netherlands, which went viral. So I just got in touch with him and said, could I turn it into a blog? It's about the right length. And he kindly agreed. And it's, it's, uh, the title is 10 Steps to Becoming a Successful Academic, The Definitive Guide. And the point he's making is that you, if you're an academic, you, there's piles of advice on blogs, in books, from other academics, and it's all contradictory. So, uh, so he, his summary of the advice was lovely. Here's an example. Be the ultimate collaborator, but also don't be. Say yes to as many collaborations as physically possible, co-produce papers, learn, co-write grants, discuss. It's all about synergy. But also, collaborations slow you down. Have your own ideas. Just say no to collaborations. Here's another one. Be the methods ninja, but also don't be. Science is only as good as its weakest link. Don't be satisfied by applying the default analyses in the field. But also, don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. And don't confuse reviewers. Just apply the default analyses in the field. And finally, I mean, there were 10, but I'm just giving you three. Be the superstar teacher, but also don't be. Professor means teacher. It is literally in the name. Being a good professor means being a superstar teacher, but also focus on the science and minimize the hours of teaching. Don't try to become a superstar teacher. And on and on it went. And it was great. It's like, yeah, do this and don't do this. And the arguments are strong for both. And as someone commented on Twitter, is it any wonder that so many academics have nervous breakdowns when they're subjected to this kind of um, dissonance? So it was a really lovely piece. Uh, um, thanks, um, Martin, for letting me repost it. Fourth piece was altogether more serious. Um, it's by Jomo Kwame Sundaram, who's always just known as Jomo, uh, who's a, um, a really good economist linked to the UN and is a kind of part of that um, a network of heterodox economists who critique have been critiquing a lot of orthodoxies for a very long time around, uh, so often circling around ECOSOC and, and different bits of the UN. Um, and his piece is called Nothing to Learn from East Asia. And his argument, which I think is slightly overdone, but anyway, his argument is that no serious efforts to draw policy lessons from East Asia, East Asia on COVID contagion containment. So there's been some really successful uh, uh, initiatives to contain the pandemic in East Asia, and no one in the West, according to Jomo, is really paying any attention. And he draws out some of the lessons. So first of all, it's not just about lockdowns. He thinks the key lesson from China was all about speed. 
The faster you can find the cases, isolate the cases and track their close contacts, the more successful you're going to be. In South Korea, the lesson is mass testing early on, enabled by WYSI new technologies, really helped get an initial control of the pandemic, although there has now been a bigger outbreak. Um, Vietnam was really interesting. So Vietnam, he said, tightens its tightened its border and airport control of Chinese visitors. And this wasn't an easy decision, given that cross-border trade with China accounts for a significant part of the Vietnamese economy. Vietnam also started early. It, it, it went into um, you know, emergency response before the WHO even declared a pandemic. Some really interesting things on it, Vietnam, according to JOMO, Vietnam's created a kind of bubble, a freedom of information on COVID-related matters. So it's basically said, OK, it may, may have you know, control information and be quite closed as a system for everything else. But on COVID, it's had a little freedom of information bubble, which enables people to, uh, to critique um, people who've been uh, abusing, you know, procurement to get themselves to make themselves rich have been put in jail. Um, you know, lots of things happening around in that inside that COVID bubble. Um, and it also uh, has lockdown and isolation are more selective. They do it by by city and town rather than across the whole country. So Joe's conclusion is that more than two decades after the 1997 to 1998 Asian financial crisis exposed the systemic financial fragility, creating conditions for the 2008-2009 global financial crisis. So basically, we knew that there was something wrong with the financial system 10 years before the global financial crisis because of what happened in Asia in the late 90s, but we didn't learn. And he doesn't think anything's changed. The reluctance to learn from the East continues, ignoring Prophet Muhammad's advice to seek knowledge even unto China, which is a rather good ending. So I guess, you know, and then I had a conversation about that piece um, uh, the, uh, the following day with, you know, with somebody who's a civil society activist who was saying, you know, we can't be drawn into saying you need a closed society, you need a repressive government, you need to have, um, you know, total control in order to, con to control uh, COVID. We need to find examples where an active civil society uh, has uh, helped and, and actually also contributed to curbing COVID. And I think that's a really good challenge. It seems to me that what you've got in East Asia is a situation where pretty closed or very closed um, political systems have delivered the goods. In places where that is not the case, civil society has done very well. I'm interested in what civil society has done in those closed economies because, you know, South Korea, uh, well, South Korea isn't that closed, but uh, China and Vietnam have active civil societies. Do they do you know, service delivery, compliance, or do they do more? And the examples we've got in our emerging agency project suggest they do more. Some really interesting feminist organization in Wuhan, for example, which uh, which I've written about. So interesting. This you know, took me back to that book I wrote ages ago, the um, From Poverty to Power, that, that, that argued that you needed a combination of effective states and active citizens. So I guess Jomo is saying effective state doing this on COVID, and we're through the emergent agency project, program looking at the active citizen part and then the really interesting question is how do those two things intersect so on that slightly meta note i will leave you and have a great weekend and talk to you next week